You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. If you've got a, a Bible, that would be fantastic. If you could turn to John chapter 3, I'm going to speak for a few moments. Privilege having everyone here together. I do love these family occasions. We do want to continue to pray for these guys. I'm sure we'll be doing this again very soon. Um, I grew up, new house, new baby. I was always told to expect Mark and Abby to be back here in about a year's time doing the next one. But I, I, I'll be careful what I say. Just while you're turning into Bibles to John chapter 3, every story that you hear about children just seems fascinating, doesn't it? Every situation, you just sort of think, oh, it's remarkable. You know, in some respect, you'd love to have had longer and just heard about them. I, I don't think I've ever heard a sort of birth story that has not moved me and challenged me. This week, in preparing for this, I, I was trawling through the internet, so all these stories will be true. And the fact is that they were saying some very unusual births. So um, if, you're, if you're pregnant, I don't want to worry you, but last year, they, um, a 21-year-old girl, Jade, gave birth naturally to a 15-pound, 7-ounce baby. Now, I, I can see already I've lost half the women in the church. They're going, oh, man, alive. Yet they didn't realize it was uh, quite that size when she went into the labor ward. 15-pound, his name was George. The, longi- the longest labor I looked up this week was 75 days. 75 days. Apparently this woman, um, she had to stay in bed for the whole time. She had to lay in bed at 30 degree angle. um, And and she did it, had a healthy baby. Longest one. The shortest, shortest labor. Now some of you will already be thinking of this. The shortest labor, this was from the waters breaking to the baby being born was 120 seconds. Man alive. I mean, you really would be catching them like that, wouldn't you? You think 120 seconds. Seconds. The oldest. So if you're a, a lady here today and you think maybe I've missed out on all of this, the oldest naturally conceived birth in this country, baby born, sorry, and conceived not with IVF, natural, was to a lady who was 59. So um, all the ladies here that are under 60, there's still some hope for you this morning. And in the Guinness World of Records, for the husband and wife that have had the most children, I, I know, I take my hat off to Abby's father, you know, had 10, I stopped after three, personally. The most, according to the Guinness World of Records, is 69. 69 children, they had 16 sets of twins, 7 sets of triplets, and 4 quadruplets. I thought, can you imagine that? Apparently it was a Russian fez- uh, peasant, I was going to say peasant. <laughs> you felt something was going on there. 69 children, biggest. Anyway, I want to go to a quite an unusual uh, birthing story in the Bible. And you thought, golly, how are you going to go with that? Well, let's look at this and find out what happens. John chapter 3 and verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man 
be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And it's this sort of bizarre, unusual conversation, isn't it? There's this whole challenge. Well, actually, what is this really like? And, and what's, what's going on here? I'd like us just to take, take a moment and to look at this story. Nicodemus, first of all, we know that he was a Pharisee. Now, if you don't know anything about the Bible, the Pharisees, they were, I was going to say, like head boy and head girl of society. They were top dog. There was a limit of 6,000 Pharisees at any one time within the nation. It was like a brotherhood. They were considered the special ones, the separated ones. They were the ones that actually made sure that you could obey the rules to connect to God. Do you know the Pharisees made a rule that if you're a lady, you're not supposed to look in a mirror on a Sunday. Because if you did, you might spot a grey hair and you'd be tempted to pluck it out and that was considered work on the Sabbath. You see, they were the ones that were there that were really trying to say, Look, I would love to help you connect to God. And, and Nicodemus, he was one of these guys. He wanted to help people to connect to God. In fact, he was so successful, the Bible tells us, that he was in the Jewish ruling council. Now, the ruling council was made up of only 70 people. So out of the 6,000, he'd got into the top 70. It was almost like the Supreme Court of their day. And in fact, even within that, we think Nicodemus was this really special guy because later on in the Bible, Jesus refers to him as Israel's teacher. And so what they think is he really was someone that was clever, that was intelligent, that he'd been to Cambridge University. You know what I'm saying? He was, he was a bright chap, responsible for wisdom and teaching, a man of authority and learning. And yet what I love about this is he wanted to meet with Jesus. It's almost like, oh, he wanted to connect and to discover Jesus. I love the fact that Jesus welcomes him. Jesus welcomes people. I don't know if you've picked that up this morning in some of the songs that Richard was singing. You see, at the moment, we could be thinking about this Pharisee, and you think, wow, he's really clever and important. But actually, if, you were, if you've got your Bible open or it's on your phone and you scroll up to the next page, we suddenly see that Jesus welcomes a Samaritan woman. <laughs> Samaritan woman that actually we know had been married five times and was living with someone that wasn't her husband. Some would say that the Pharisee was considered the pinnacle of society and she maybe was considered the low point of society. But Jesus wanted to meet with her. And in fact, if you then go on in that chapter, you find that there's a, a royal a official son that is unwell. And the royal official, he wants to meet with Jesus too and Jesus meets with him. And then in fact, we find in chapter five that there's a guy who's an invalid, he's been lying beside this pool, hoping that, that the pool will be touched by an angel and that he'd get healed, and Jesus meets with him. I was saying earlier that even the children, Jesus doesn't turn away. He doesn't get flustered and think, oh, they're noisy. The disciples try and turn them away, but Jesus doesn't. He said, let them come to me. I don't know out of all these people which most represent you. Is it the wise and the wealthy, or is it the poor and the needy? Is it the shamed woman or the well-connected man? Or do you feel a bit like a rejected child? Because what I would want to say to you this morning is whatever you feel like, Jesus would love to meet with you. What do we, what do we discover about this meeting between Nicodemus and Jesus? Well, actually, what it says is that Nicodemus came at night. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night. Now, some people think, why did he come at night? Well, there's some suggestion that he was quite a timid fellow. 
that actually he was concerned what other people would think. You see, going to church or saying you believe in Jesus, actually, it can be quite tough. I think it's often a challenge. Some people think, oh, I'd like to find out, but I don't want anyone to know that I'm finding out. Some people think that maybe Nicodemus was afraid of the cost, maybe what it would cost his reputation, how it would impact upon him. People that read the, the, the gospel, and this is one of them, there's four in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, understand that John often used uh, things like day and night to express what was going on in the heart. And so what he says is actually when Nicodemus came at night, it's really because he felt he was a bit dark and confused. And Jesus is the light of the world. He was looking for some help. There was another suggestion that I read this week, which I really quite liked. And that Jesus came at night because the crowd would have been smaller. And although I read it and it felt like a two-minute conversation, there was a famous painting of the, the meeting of Jesus and Nicodemus, and it was actually over a meal, and there was like food on the table. And what he really wanted with Jesus is he wanted a long time. He didn't want to just brush past him in the crowd. I guess what we think is Jesus was eager to spend time with him. He was eager to spend time with Jesus. What then do we discover about Jesus, the other character in this that we're just quickly looking at? It says, doesn't it? He came to Jesus at night. Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs that you are doing if God were not with him. You see, Nicodemus respected Jesus as this phenomenal teacher, which is amazing considering Nicodemus himself was in the top 70 of the country and was recognized as a teacher. And I think, actually, whether you go to church or not, many people would say, I've, I respect the words of Jesus. Maybe you've read one of his parables. You thought, wow, that's really good about loving your enemy. Maybe you've read something of the Sermon on the Mount. You thought, God, if I could actually live by that. Or maybe that's what this society is based upon. Maybe you've, you've understood his, his gentleness with those that have, have made a mistake. How quick Jesus was to forgive. How often he spoke a loving word to the margins of society, to those downtrodden, to the poor. And, and people have, have often thought, wow, his words were phenomenal. I read a quote this week, Socrates taught for 40 years, Plato for 50, Aristotle for 40, and yet Jesus only three. Yet the influence of Jesus' three-year ministry infinitely transcends the impact left by the combined 130 years of teaching from these men who are among the greatest philosophers of all time. And so many would say, actually, a bit like Nicodemus, I respect the teaching of Jesus. But he didn't just stop there. Nicodemus said, and I've, I've heard about your miracles, your miraculous signs. And if you read the Gospels, you discover that Jesus didn't just talk a good game, he actually lived it. We know that he, he multiplied literally a, a, a picnic basket, a Nando's meal, you might say today, and fed 5,000 men and their families. We know that he made the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the lame to walk. He forgave the sinner. He walked on water. He calmed the storm. We know that actually Jesus healed the leper. He loved and people loved him. There's something miraculous about it. Napoleon said this about Jesus. I know men and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne and I have founded empires. 
But on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of men would die for him. And Napoleon is there sort of saying, well, actually what he did and the way he led, he loved people. And they were just won over and thought, wow, this is the kind of miraculous love that inspires. Even Mahatma Gandhi, he said this about Jesus. A man who is completely innocent offered himself as a sacrifice for the good of others, including his enemies, and became the ransom of the world. It was a perfect act. I guess it's fascinating, isn't it? You just think, wow, here's this guy. Nicodemus, who wants to meet with Jesus. I think people still meet with Jesus all the time. I was uh, flicking through this book called Life Change this week, and I come across this guy's uh, story. He's Shane Taylor. You've probably never heard of him. He was considered one of the most notorious prisoners in Britain's jails. He was in isolation. Not only had he you know, tried to sort of stab a guy, he then tried to take out prison officers. He'd been in trouble with the, the law for years. And then he did something, some of you would have heard of it, a course called Alpha that was in prison. And he would say, God, it just totally changed him around. He would then say he became a Christian. He came out of prison. Uh, and I'll just read a few words from his story. Since becoming a Christian, I've never committed a criminal offence. Never pinched a car, never burgled a house, never stolen. I did struggle a bit with anger, but that is now gone. I used to swear constantly, but not now. A lot of things changed in me. I wanted to make peace with the man I'd stabbed through the shoulder. He didn't believe that I'd found God, so I spoke to someone he knew and said, I'm not the same person. I want to shake the man's hand. He came to the pub, shook my hand and said, it takes a man to do what you've done. Thanks. And that was that. And this is God. And so this was this, you know, Shane Taylor, he said, wow, I've just encountered Jesus and it's totally changed my life. There's another story in here, a guy called Jamie Hind. Uh, he was um, a, a, a great performer. He, he worked for the Royal Shakespeare Society. He actually performed in The Lion King. I don't know if you've seen it, up in the London West End show. And it's funny because in, in many ways he trained his whole life to do this and he'd done so well but he said, you know, I found it bizarre that two and a half thousand people could applaud me of an evening, but I'd still go home and feel empty on the inside. He um, actually got a hold of a book called Why Jesus, but I've got a copy of it just here. He was on the train down to Cardiff. He read through the booklet and prayed a prayer. Here's his story. It was 5.15. It was dark outside and I was all alone in the carriage. So I said the prayer out loud. It was something along the lines of, Dear Lord Jesus, please forgive me for my sins. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. I ask you to come into my life, heal my life, and guide my life. I can't explain what happened. It was the most amazing, profound experience. I expected nothing. I was just saying the prayer. But I said it with integrity, with force, and with absolute meaning. I was at peace, serene, joyful, and blissful. I felt incredible. You see, I think these people would say they'd encountered Jesus too. What Jesus was saying, going back to the story of Nicodemus, he says, look, religion is not enough. I offer you life. You see, Nicodemus knew all about religion and rules, 
But Jesus said, I want to come and give you life. What Jesus said was, to see the supernatural in me is not enough. I want you to experience it for yourself. That's what he was saying. Nicodemus, you know, comes with this question, you know, how can it be? You know, it's, it's not a sense of hopelessness. It's almost a sense of wishfulness. Nicodemus recognized he needed something. And then Jesus uses this term three times. He uses it in verse 3, verse 5, and verse 7. I just read the first uh, passage. He says, unless you're born again, unless he's born again, you must. You know, and I, I, when I was reading through this this week, I thought of Mark. You know what I'm saying? Mark's that enthusiastic type, if you know Mark Sibbons very well. You know, I'd, I'd never been to Wimbledon, and, and he's never been to Wimbledon. You must go to Wimbledon. I said, well, how do I get a ticket? He said, fill it in a ballot. I can tell you how to do it. You know, and, and you suddenly think, oh, yeah, that's a compulsion. Go with Mark. You know what I'm saying? We're suddenly caught up. You know, before I know it, there we are having strawberries and cream. And it's almost like I believe Jesus is saying that to Nicodemus. Look, I'd love to get you caught up in this. Hey, you must find out about this great news. It's a word that, if we're really honest, has got a bit of bad press. If I say to you now, born again, some people think about, well, I looked it up on the internet. What is born again? You can get born again kitchens. I'm not quite sure what the born again kitchen is. I think it's when you replace all the cupboard doors and it just looks like a new kitchen, but I'll leave that to you. You can get born again sports personalities, which I think is just they've made a a change in their career. I I was really confused by this. You can get a born-again atheist now. I'm not quite sure what that means either. But so often it's like, what's born-again mean? Well, these guys would have understood the term a little better than us. And I just want to quickly explain why. You see, if you became a Jew, so, you know, you were born a non-Jew, which would be called a Gentile, and you decide, I want to become a Jew then actually you'd have to pray, you'd have to sacrifice, you'd have to go through a a, a sort of baptism experience, and you were regarded as being a newborn, reborn. In fact, when you became a Jew, so if you converted to becoming a Jew in those days, all the sins that you'd done before were completely forgotten because they said you're now a new man. It's like totally born again. I didn't quite understand this, and I'm not trying to preach this this morning to be very careful what I say, but they reckon that if you got saved as a Jew, you were born again as a Jew, you had a new birth, you could marry your mother or your sister because you were a new person. You were totally different. Now, that seems quite odd to me, and I'm just going to park that thought. But what it meant is they understood it as meaning something totally new. It was a completely new beginning. So the Jews would have understood that. Even the Greeks in those days understood something of being born again. You see, at the time, they had what were called a lot of mystery religions. And the idea was that you went through this emotive play to try and identify with God, and you sort of played the part out. And when the union was made between you and God, however you tried to achieve it, you were considered to have been reborn. That's what they did. They used to celebrate, amongst the Greeks, spiritual birthdays. In fact, many of these plays took place at midnight because they thought the day ended and the new one begun. And so as the new day started, you were reborn. There was this one that I read about this week, Terra Bolonium. I don't know if any of you have heard of that. If somebody has, I could well be in trouble because I hope I've got the facts right. A candidate 
was a, a pit was dug. And the candidate would go down into the pit and they would put lattice across the top of the pit. They would then get a bull and sacrifice the bull over the pit. And the guy underneath would have the blood of the bull run over him. He would wash himself in the blood of the bull. This was Greek idea. And the idea was that he was then reborn for all eternity. Now, we can sort of think, oh, golly, how do I handle this? Sometimes even you think, oh, born-again Christians, man, are they complete wacky? Where are they like? I'm just trying to give you an understanding of the context of this whole terminology. I believe that right throughout the New Testament that this is a picture that is, is, is there to explain what goes on. When writing to Titus, Paul says, he saved us, this is about Jesus Christ, because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth. We know that Peter, when he writes to the church, says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. John, in his letter, says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who has been born of God loves. And I think this is what Jesus was therefore trying to say to Nicodemus. I want to offer you the chance to be born again, a new birth reborn. You can be born into the kingdom of God. You can be born into a son of God. You can be born into eternal life. You see, I would therefore say that becoming a Christian is not just about fixing something that's broken. It's not just can we follow a certain way. It's transformation on the inside. I was reading this book some of you think, yeah, unfortunately I didn't have enough copies or I'd love to sell it to you. You just thought, I found it some amazing stories in it. Damien McGuinness. He was a, a guy brought up in Manchester, a very rough part of Manchester, really sort of struggled, um, very difficult start. Basically, he ends up being put in prison for armed robbery. And whilst there, has an encounter with Jesus Christ. He comes out and he just says, I've grown in God so much since then. My life has changed. I don't drink or smoke now. For many years, I had a hard heart, but God has now given me a soft heart, a compassion and a love for people. I don't fight now. I don't need to fight. I pray every day. And he's just saying, Ashley, it's totally changed me around. There's another story in here, Hugo Monet. Some of you rugby players might have heard of him. Plays for Harlequins, selected for England and the British Lions. He'd been taken to church as a kid, but just thought, oh, I just can't get into it. Nothing's there for me. He worked hard and did well in sport, but still felt something was missing. Again, this was a guy that actually he did an alpha course. He went on the alpha and he thought, wow, I've, I've just, although I've been so successful in my rugby, I still realized that I was looking for something else. There's so many stories that I'd, I'd love to be reading to you out of this book. A guy called David Joseph, he was a drug dealer in the States, but actually he was of British origin, so after he got kicked out of prison, they threw him back here. He literally came back in a, in a paper gown. That's all they had. I, you can't believe these stories. I mean, it's remarkable that they leave him at Heathrow like that. He's got nothing. He spends three days just in the airport. Literally, you know, you think, oh, and you think... And then he just says, oh, but actually, I've met God and my whole life has been changed. He said, as a drug dealer, I had four grand in my pocket every day. I could do whatever I like. He said, but I felt so confined. 
He said, now I'm changed. He said, I haven't got the money in my pocket, but I feel so free. There was a, another story. <laughs> I'll be careful. Yeah, I mean, anybody fancy this book, by the way? I mean, seriously, I've read it now. If you want to have it, you're most welcome to have it. There was a rower in here. I mean, this was like an Olympic kind of rower. It wasn't Olympic because he didn't sprint. He rowed the Atlantic. He rode with Bear Grylls. Some of you might have seen his television program. And, you know, they're rowing across. They get hit by this hurricane. I mean, literally, they're just strapped onto this raft. I mean, he thinks he's going to die. And he says, God, if you're there, if you get me home, I promise I'll go to a church. He goes to a church in his life. He said, it's just totally changed. Now, he was an adventurer. He still is an adventurer. He loves that. Story after story of people that have just said, wow, I feel like... I've no longer heard the words of Jesus. I've no longer just read the stories of Jesus. I've no longer just thought about Jesus as supernatural from a distance. I feel like I've come to experience him for myself. That's the beauty of Nicodemus. You see, in the end, I believe that Nicodemus changed. Why is that? Because if I had time, I could take you to John 7. And when other people started questioning Jesus, Nicodemus said, hang on, hang on. We've not, have you talked to him? I don't know if you know the details, but when Jesus hung on a cross and died, a guy came and took him down and put him in a tomb, Joseph of Arimathea. Some of you would have heard of that. But actually, it also said Nicodemus was alongside him. It tells you that in John 19, I believe it is. Nicodemus was the one that paid for the spices to prepare Jesus' body for burial. You see, when Nicodemus had encountered Jesus, he was totally changed. And I guess I would just like to say, for some people here, you might think, ah, oh, Peter, I've never really thought about Jesus and who he is. Well, it may well be that Alpha's the thing for you. And it may well be you think, look, there's flies on chairs. Give it a Tuesday night. Come and have coffee and cake with us at Costa. Why not find out? Well, who is this Jesus? Or you might say, well, actually, I quite like to read the booklet. We've got loads of them on the table at the back. They're free. Please take one. You see, my prayer for Levi for Ivana and Eliana, is that one day they'd say, I've been born again. It's not just I'm celebrating being born, but actually I'm celebrating the fact I'm now in a relationship with him. And hopefully they'll invite you back to church for themselves. And we call that baptism in this church, you know what I'm saying? And they'll come back and say, hey, I'm giving myself to him completely. I want you to realize that I'm sold out for him. Come along, you know, and I'll have to think of a different sermon for that time. But we'd love to see you back here. Because we believe this is what it's all about. I'm going to pray, and then the band are going to lead us in one last song. Jesus, we thank you that you welcome us to come to you. We thank you that you had time for people like Nicodemus and a Samaritan woman. We thank you that you've got such wise words and you did amazing actions in your life. But we thank you as well we don't just have to observe you as supernatural from afar, but we can encounter you. I thank you for these stories of people that have met you today and are changed. I want to pray for every one of us here. I pray that we don't just think, oh, golly, I've I've done me hour and a half, I've gone. I pray that we'll have met you and our lives will be better and richer for having encountered the living Jesus. Amen.